part of the motivation in growth of the Chinese fleet has to do with domestic concerns about population growth and controlling the supply chain of seafood consumption. Part of it is geopolitical and, and a, a subsection of the fleet is actually only ostensibly fishing vessels, but they, you know, they look like fishing vessels or registered fishing vessels, but they're not fishing and they're not really meant to fish. They're there to create facts on the ground. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with Ian Urbino, one of the world's preeminent experts on illicit fishing. He's the director of the Outlaw Ocean Project and is the author of articles in places like the New York Times, The Guardian, and The New Yorker that have highlighted issues like slavery aboard fishing vessels, Chinese illegal fishing off the coast of West Africa, and more. In our discussion, we made the case that illegal fishing is more than just a criminal conspiracy. It's a global security threat. We talk specifically about how China subsidizes its distant water fleet on the scale of billions of dollars a year and is also using what amounts to a militia at sea of ragtag vessels to enforce its claims to economic rights in the area. It was a fascinating and and important conversation and is part of our broader look into illicit fishing around the world that I hope you take a look on our website for. I hope you enjoyed the show. Ian Urbina, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So for those listeners who are not familiar with the topic, could you just give a very brief overview what illicit fishing, IUU fishing in kind of the technical parlance is, where it takes place, who perpetrates it, and kind of why we should care about it? Yeah, so IUU stands for illegal, unregulated, and underreported fishing, and it's sort of this catch-all. It has this acronym because it's meant to capture a wider range of the kinds of activities that happen out there. Um, In some cases, these are the breaking of certain laws, going places you're not allowed to, or using gear you're not supposed to. In other cases, it's you're hiding the amount of fish you're catching. And in other cases, still, it's just this gray, murky area where players are engaged in sort of extra legal behavior that's unsustainable, if nothing else. It happens, really, it's going on all all over the world. You know, the, the statistic that gets thrown around is one in five fish that ends up on American plates is probably uh, IUU related. And, you know, why should folks care? I mean, it is a category of criminality that, you know, impacts us all because we're all consumers of the product. And so we're sort of complicit in it as buyers of these goods. It's also a concern from an ocean conservation point of view in terms of uh, managing and governing the space and the resources that are there in a way that is lasting and fair. It's also a concern because it overlaps and feeds into other kinds of crimes, arms trafficking, human slavery, you know, murder, dumping of oil, you know, there are a range of other sorts of criminality that often overlap with illegal fishing. So for all these reasons, it, it really is a concern to all of us, even if it's not happening right on our waters. Yeah. You had a a recent, really impressive New Yorker article that looked at this happening off the coast of West West Africa in particular, and how it was undercutting the local fisheries, but also kind of with the complicity of the Ministry of Fisheries and this this web of corruption and criminality. How does that affect countries that, that really don't have the ability to police their own seas? 
in much, if not most of the world, countries don't have navies or coast guards. Right and coastal nations. And so um, there are laws on the books, but enforcement is non-existent, except the enforcement that might occur sometimes when the fish or whatever is landed. And so those countries are distinctly attractive to the to fleets that want to purloin um, uh, fish. Uh, and um, uh, it, West Africa is a, a really attractive place also for this, not just because of the lack of capability in most of those nations to police, but also up until a decade ago was relatively untouched by industrial mm-hmm. commercial fishing fleets. Mm-hmm. And so it hasn't been overfished like say the South China Sea has. And so they're more abundant in stocks. And again, until recently, that side of Africa uh, didn't have the piracy concerns as acute um, as elsewhere. So it was attractive. It remains attractive. In this case, you know, there's this niche market that's really booming in West Africa, specifically Mauritania, Senegal, and Gambia, uh, which is fish meal, which is sort of ground up fish that becomes high protein pellets that get fed to livestock and aquaculture fish. And, And there's a lot of money to be made in fish meal and super destructive of marine environment. And a lot of the commercial boats that are combing the coast of West Africa are feeding 14 major Chinese fish meal factories that have been built in the last five, 10 years in those three countries. So it's onshore fishing factories in Africa, though, in these countries, built by Chinese companies. So it's kind of this results of the Chinese going out policy and, you know, their engagement with Africa and everything like that. So it's direct investment into these companies, but then they they do un- undermine, your article does a good example of this, of undermining the rule of law in these, these places. It's not like the the fisheries are, you know, being well-regulated and mm-hmm. everything like that. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it's not unlike what the U.S. did in Latin America. I mean, so, so this is not distinct to China, but it is an old story of the double-edged sword of development capital, you know, a foreign capital. In this case, like you said, the Belt and Road, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is sort of the, the Chinese overarching global mission to, on the one hand, raise its brand, extend its reach, seize business opportunities that are now more accessible because the U.S. has pulled back in many of these places in recent years. Uh, on the other hand, what ends up resulting in many of these cases is the countries that are welcoming and and, and hungry and quite legitimately courting this kind of capital for the sake of the obvious things, you know, building roads and bridges and schools and countering COVID and what have you, essentially progressing their country. They're eager to get their hands on corporate investment that can help them do that. On the other hand, they don't really have the track record or experience or expertise or infrastructure to regulate the activities that they're inviting into their country and the fish meal industry in general and the the Chinese corporate players in particular and in Gambia in specific are one such place where what looked like a really attractive business opportunity for Gambia to bring in revenue has not panned out that way and has resulted in all sorts of surprises such as, you know, oh wait, you know, yes, it brought in a factory and we've got 20 guys hired. That's good income for locals. On the other hand, we've just killed our tourism industry because we didn't realize that these factories smell horrible and they're right on the coast and no one wants the resort to go to the resort where it smells like boiling fish or the pollution or other, you know, other sort of the dumping problems of these factories, et cetera. So the costs 
are hidden and slow motion, and they end up being maybe more expensive than the investment. Fascinating. The Chinese fishing fleet here is talked about a lot when people talk about IUU fishing, and and there's been interest from Congress and and uh, uh, you know Coast Guard and and the Navy partially because of competition with China and that sort of issues. Digging into this a little more, when we say the Chinese fishing fleet, though, these aren't are these government owned companies or is it? privately owned? Is it criminal efforts? You know, when we talk about the vast Chinese fishing fleet, and you see these numbers thrown around of huge numbers of ships kind of going all over the world and and somewhat controlled, it seems like. This isn't what we think of as just a free market fishing fleet, right? Yeah. I mean, China is a distinct place, right? You know, it's, it's distinct because of how it's governed. It's distinct because of its size. And it's distinct because of the rapid rate of its growth and and all of those factors you see in the fishing fleet. And so what you said, all of the above is true. You have, you know, straight up illicit players, just standard illegal operators. Mm -hmm. You have fully private players. You have typically older fleets that in yesteryears had to, by definition, be partially corporate, I mean, excuse me, partially government owned. Those sorts of norms and regulations within the fleets where the government has to have a piece of the action essentially have loosened. And so you have more fully, relatively fully privatized fleets, but the government still you know, exerts a pretty tight control over all of its major industries. So even with the private vessels within the distant water fishing fleet for China. And we're talking about anywhere from three to 4,000 vessels that really go far from shore. Uh, You you have uh, pretty aggressive government involvement, both in the terms of oversight, but also in the terms of subsidies. China is a heavy subsidizer of its fleet. Mm -hmm. Now, China's goal is multiple, you know, and not all nefarious by any means. It's a huge nation, rapidly growing. It has major food security needs. And really, the leaders are trying to think ahead, sort of look around corners and make sure that they have fuller independence and control over key sources of protein for their own population growth. So part of the motivation in growth of the Chinese fleet has to do with domestic concerns about population growth and controlling the supply chain of seafood consumption. Part of it is geopolitical and and a, a subsection of the fleet is actually only ostensibly fishing vessels, but they, you know, they look like fishing vessels or registered fishing vessels, but they're not fishing and they're not really meant to fish. They're there to create facts on the ground, if you will. And that by that, I mean, there are quite a few ships uh, and small fleets that are fishing, Chinese fishing vessels in the South China Sea and the Spratlys, right. you know, that are supposed to sort of be there, A, to set a historical precedent. The arguments that the regional fisheries management organizations, RFMOs, are often based on, well, who's been there the longest? is how many boats they have and therefore what rights do they have in terms of the catch quotas of the region right and if you don't have many boats there and you haven't had them for very long and they're not actually pulling in that much fish your country's not going to get or protect its quotas and so partly you know china is attempting to establish that it's also just attempting to establish with its fishing boats a presence in the area so that then when it builds an island of sand and says oh for centuries this has been part of our region of control. And so we can build this, build up this shoal, you know, that was always ours. We're just making a runway on it and a landing ship on it. The presence of those fishing boats also helps. And then also when other folks come near uh, and, and suddenly, you know, when the Malaysians 
move over closer to the edge of a contested zone, China, you know, essentially sends a lot of these fishing boats into the area to, I, I, now I'm speculating, but essentially yeah. to scare away the competition. It's almost like, like they act almost like a militia or something like this. It, That's right. Yeah. They've yeah, been called and, a civilian militia. Yeah. And you see it. Yeah. You mentioned Malaysia. We saw a few years ago that Vietnamese did some exploratory oil and gas drilling in, in their waters. And, and, you know, there was, there was vessels pushing on that. And, and even, you know, when, when you show, when it gets in the news sometimes about a U.S. naval vessel being harassed by Chinese, it's not, it's often not a Chinese naval vessel. It's these other ships and, and everything like that. It, mm-hmm. It's a different, mm-hmm. different look than just Navy versus Navy. Mm-hmm. Really interesting really important and certainly something that they have to they think about a lot. Talk a little bit about human security. The people who work on these ships, maybe not the Chinese ones, but maybe on uh, Chinese ones, but broader. You wrote a story, The Times, uh, Sea Slaves, the human misery that feeds pets and livestock that really drove home this idea, this important concept that we think of slavery as a bygone era. But once you're pulled onto a ship, there's not a lot of stuff that you can do to get away from this. Where is this happening? And what explains more about mm-hmm. the issue? Yeah, I mean, so the sea slavery story is one that is not unlike the human trafficking and labor trafficking story on land in the mm-hmm. sense that it appears in this spectrum form, where on one end of the spectrum, if you say, if you you might say at the softer end of the spectrum, you have forms of forced labor that are debt bondage. You know, a guy comes across the border and he doesn't have a cent to his name. He owes the trafficker. The trafficker sells him to the factory boss at the coal mine or the yeah. garment factory or or the docks, right? And the guy now has to work down his debt to the fishing captain. That's debt bondage. Th- that is clearly a um, a major presence in some parts of the world, quite especially Thailand, Cambodia, Myanmar are in the South China Sea area, but also mm-hmm. West Africa, you know, you find these situations on a fair number of boats, Uruguay, you know, the other end of the spectrum of sea slavery is the kind of more acute version, the harder end. And, and this is straight up Shanghaiing of workers, right. you know, that guy goes and carouses at a so-called karaoke bar with his a brothel and has some drinks and carouses. And next thing he knows, he wakes up and he's been roofied, you know, drugged, and he's on a boat and you, there are brokers who are labor brokers is what they call themselves the traffickers by our definition and a word has been put out to them to hey i'm short three guys and i got to get out of port in, in 48 hours can you help me out and ties in this case i i looked at the tie industry don't typically take those jobs because it's a middle-class country and they can probably get easier work and so this is mostly migrant trafficked worker from laos cambodia myanmar and a labor broker goes out and tries to convince some folks but sometimes has to just resort to other means and this is not a i wouldn't say it's it's common but it it's it, it happens look i i've interviewed a half dozen folks who uh, ended up on boats and they were shanghai and then there are tens of thousands of guys who are on the other end of the spectrum debt bonded and again what's distinct though from on land trafficking is you know the obvious the out of sight out of mind you can't get away, you can't you get away once no. you're on, on yeah, ship. Yeah. Yeah. your factory is you know thousands of miles from shore and moving and you don't even speak the language of your captor and and you might not even be near a port of your native country for upwards of two years uh so you're stuck wow and this in the modern day this is still happening what 
what are the solutions here? What first talking about the slavery issue, the debt bondage, what are what are best practices? How can if we cared about this and wanted to do something about it, what are the solutions here? Well, first I'd say the we drill down on the we yeah. in the sense, you know, depends on taxpayers, lawmakers, advocates, donors, consumers, corporate buyers. They're all different we's. The, the same right. woman or man might be multiple of those, but but there are different leverage potentials from each category of actor. And all of them have a duty and ability to play a role on sea slavery. I, I, as I prioritize like the levers of change, I do look probably first to uh, the market players because mm. even more so than say sweatshop garments or blood diamonds, you know, or dolphin free tuna, even this marketplace, i.e. the global seafood marketplace is one that is because a lot of it's happening on the high seas, which is jurisdictionally complicated and sort of distinctly unpoliced, the ability for governments to actually do something about that problem on that ship, which is registered to someone in one country and captained by a guy from another country and carrying cargo that left from a third country and the guys getting traffic are from a fourth country, you know, like... I don't have a huge amount of faith that governments can do as much. They can do a lot yeah. as the market players can. The market players are the big buyers, you know, so be it the U.S. government who buys, you know, over $2 million worth of tuna a year for bases, military bases and public schools or big players like Walmart, you know, that sells a lot of seafood products. Th those are the players that really could very, or the EU, big sort of coalitions of governments could make decisions. Hey, look, we don't want any more shrimp or tuna or whatever, unless it complies with these specific requirements. You know, the ship could never have turned off its transponder. It has a crew manifest. manifest. We know everywhere, the supply chain, every link in the chain, we know from hook to plate, bait to plate, as they say, each step. So it doesn't get transshipped at sea where it becomes murky as to our fish gets mixed with those guys' fish and it all gets bundled together. Sure. And sold. The buyers are the ones that probably could buck the globalized trend of making these supply chains horizontal and instead yes. go for a more vertical accountability. Where And it's going to raise the price and slow down the pace of the product. But uh, if you don't want slavery or IUU in your product, then... Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, what about just sort of the IUU over exploitation of the fisheries? It seems like there are... Let's take it as, as a given, first of all, that the US Navy, US Coast Guard are, are already overtaxed, mm. but... There is, there is efforts that they can do there. And then there's also increasingly sort of public-private partnerships. There are these there's groups that are philanthropically funded, like Sea Shepherd or something mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. that go out and can play some of that role and, and help build these public-private partnerships that allow local governments to do, do more, have more capacity, have more ability to, to police their own waters. Yeah. So, I mean, I think on the public-private, yes. So you have... Quite distinctly, I believe, you know, the, the two big NGO players that have boats on the water are Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd. There aren't many others that really have fleets. And Sea right. Shepherd, Greenpeace has, I think, three or four big ships, and they do campaigns on the water. Sea Shepherd has eight, nine, you know, big ships, and they really do campaigns. And they're increasingly leaning into this, this partnership model where they're going to places like Gambia. I mean, that story in The New Yorker was right. partially reported on a Sea Shepherd ship. Right. And you know, they're going to countries that don't have vessels and they're offering their vessel sort of in a way that number one is a chance to train fisheries officers and, and Navy, on land Navy guys at, in these countries that how to do boardings and 
you know, operations and sort of raising their fluency on the issues and concerns. Uh, and then also getting some, you know, press for their own fundraising, NGO fundraising right. purposes. Right. And even for the country's purposes, you know, Gambia needs help. Look at all these arrests we did. We proved that there's illegality happening out there. We boarded them. But some, someone needs to help this country do this on a more sustained level because we got to move to the next stop. You know, like right. that right. kind of thing. There are critics who say, look, it's flash in the pan and these things are just press opportunities they're not really lasting in terms of the bad guys just scatter and then they come back again the minute sea shepherd's gone legitimate critique but nonetheless at the end of the day the void that sea shepherd and these these efforts are filling is one that probably is going to have to be tackled more by governments you know it's it's right. really and it may not always be patrols you know this is where tech comes into play, satellites and algorithmic data coupled with onboard cameras and all sorts of sort of other ways that you can do the same thing, but with far fewer vessel resources where you can watch ships, see that they're doing sketchy stuff just by their patterns and how they're slowing down or what zigzag pattern are they. And, you know, it ranks some high risk. And then you watch them and figure out where they're going to go next to drop off their stuff. And boom, that's where you go on board and you see uh, you do the inspection um, based on that prioritization from the data. And these these sort of monitoring devices and stuff, it's, it's relatively low cost. It's not like you have to have a nation with your own satellites or anything like that. It's it, these are commercial things and or you know partnerships with you know the American government or or whoever. Uh, yes access. and no. I mean, so so look, if the it's low cost for the American government. So there are two ways, there are two types of data out there. There's the AIS data, which is the standard transponder, mm-hmm. here's where I am type locational data right. that virtually all vessels have, but they can turn them off. Mm-hmm. And the bad guys turn them off when they do bad stuff. Then there's other, there's VMS transponding, this other type of hardwired, but very few boats have it. So the other kind of, there's either AIS data, which is public, but it sort of calls out the bad guys. So it's not a yeah, great yeah. data set. Right, 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 right. And then there's the eyes in the sky type satellites, which are yeah. watching everything at all times and sees the bad guys from the good guys. And the problem with those satellites is they're still pretty expensive, you know, to get that info. And so the US government, if it wants to, you know, develop good relations with Gambia or whatever countries in need, could, you know, really take advantage of the opportunity to share those that that satellite intel and and how to use it to do these operations and then there are you know private organizations that will subsidize poorer countries getting access to this stuff but but the price point isn't su- such that anyone can grab it free relatively inexpensively still. right 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 still still relatively higher and and for for countries with low government capacity it's it's a harder thing. It, it, it seems like this is something that is happening. It's, it's one of these great issues of globalization, right? It's, it's happening far from where we are now in, in the United States developed country. We are in many ways benefiting from the low cost that, mm-hmm. that provides, but there are these externalities that only the resources that we have, and by caring about it, either as market players, as, as you say, buyers going to the fish market or Walmart or wherever and demanding this, or as collectively as a government saying that, that we care about this. And I'd note, I, I saw there was a 
an amendment to the recent defense bill that passed Congress last year saying we want to report on what countries are doing this and who's subsidizing IUU fishing and stuff like that. So people start to care about it. And then then the next step is, okay, so what do you do about it? And Mm -hmm. that's that's one of the things and trolls and and increasing. It's it's about sort of increasing the capacity of local governments to want to care about it and deal with the criminality within their waters and and sometimes within their governments too. That's right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I do think step one is get people to care. And those people are consumers and you kind of raise fluency and urgency. And then step two is figure out what to do about it. You know, just <laughs> as you said, but you've got to, especially with this realm where it's so removed, a factory collapses and, you know, called Tazreen or Rana Plaza collapses in 2010 and kills all sorts of garment workers. Like it makes news right. and lots of people die. And all of a sudden people start asking questions about, wait, did my sweatshirt come from there? You know, it, yep. it happens fast, but when stuff happens at sea, it's it's pretty likely that no one's going to find out about it in any way that matters. Away from the cameras, right. away from okay. the press. And that's it. That's a much, much different sort of thing. It's hard to hard to tweet about it. Hard to right. uh, you right. know, that sort of stuff. Well, really important conversation. Ian, thanks for, for being with us. Where can people find out more about uh, your work and, and you know, your books? Just the outlawocean.com. Uh, we run a nonprofit journalism organization that produces these stories called the Outlaw Ocean Project. And, and it all starts there at that website. The outlawocean.com. Great. We'll put a link to that on on the show notes page. Ian Urbina, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me.